Welcome to the first episode of CF Speaks. CF Speaks seeks to unite students and faculty from the College of Central Florida for a conversation to share with our local and global community. College of Central Florida, we transform lives and enrich our community by providing a supportive, high-quality learning environment that prepares individuals to excel in work and life. Tyrus Clutter is an associate professor of painting and drawing at the College of Central Florida. He exhibits his own work around the U.S. and maintains an active studio practice. He also remains involved in the art community locally in Ocala, Florida. In addition to being a leader in his creative discipline, Professor Clutter has spoken at multiple conferences on his pedagogical innovations, including the College Art Association. Elena Iriarty is a student at the College of Central Florida. Her love of media and communication inspired her to join the Digital Media Network and eventually become a leader of the organization as secretary and treasurer. She plans to attend University of Central Florida to study archaeology. In this interview, Professor Clutter discusses his love for printmaking and his extensive collection of prints surrounding Stanley Hayter's Atelier 17 workshop. Check the description for links. So for those of us who are not familiar with what you do, what is printmaking? Well, there are different forms of printmaking, but the essential quality of it uh, that differs from other media, art media, is that you make a matrix, is what they would call it. So it could be wood, it could be metal, there's various things. And that gets offset usually onto a piece of paper, but it could be something else uh, as well. And what that really infers is that the artwork is what is produced from the thing that you, whatever your matrix is. So you can work on that piece, um, but you have multiples then of what is the actual artwork. So there's something that it gets printed off of that is not actually the artwork. Uh, and then there is the artwork, which is the prints. So, um, so how did you begin um, your printmaking collection? What what interested you? Uh, for the collection, because I you know I do the printmaking myself, but it, it really the idea for it I guess started when I was in graduate school. I went to graduate school for painting, so I was getting a master's in in painting, and in the program that I was in. They expected that you were taking classes in other media besides whatever your major area was. Um, So I did some drawing, uh, which obviously I'd had drawing classes before, but I decided to take printmaking because it would be just a different way to think about the same ideas that I was working on. Um, So that was when I first started doing any printmaking. And then also while I was in graduate school, I was asked to work in the gallery. Um, A student had left that was doing some work there, and they just said, hey, do you want to do this? And so I began doing that. Um, Some of that was normal helping hang up shows, but the main thing that the gallery director wanted me to work on was putting all of their collection in a database, which had never been done before. And so they had probably been collecting within the art department there for uh, three or four decades. And there were just legal pads with 
scratch notes on them that that had some of the collection but not all of the collection and she just said here just sit down and go through this methodically and put it all into a database which i had to set the whole database up and everything for that but um most of what was in the collection was actually printmaking and so i would come across things and be like what what is this? How did they even do this? The colors were beautiful. What I would think more of is like a painting color instead of um, just like black and white that a lot of people think that printmaking is going to be just like a woodcut or something. And so I became very fascinated with the work at that point. And because again, printmaking is multiples of the same image, I kind of promised myself if I was ever, ever able to find some of the things later on when I actually had a real job that I would uh, start collecting some of that and that's really where it began and I then did that once I did have an actual <laughs> job so so how do you go about purchasing your pieces uh, there's various ways uh, and I mostly have done it uh, online I don't think that I would have been able to create the collection the way that I have had I not done it through the internet now when this was really beginning, when I was doing it, when I w first started, when I had my first real teaching job, um, that was the late 90s, early 2000s, and the internet was still pretty new at that time. Um, I think I got my first email address when I was in graduate school, and that was, yeah, <laughs> it was. It's amazing to think that it's that been that long ago, but um, then. Um, some of it would be eBay, but in the beginning it was also um, auction houses uh, like Christie's and Sotheby's that are like the main major uh, auction houses around the world. Um, they would have a website and they would, everybody was just trying to figure out how how do we monetize what we are doing with a web presence. That has been altered over time. So um, Sotheby's and Christie's both still have websites, but they do not so much have you bidding through the websites in the way that they used to. Um, so they, it, unless it's a live auction, you might be able to do it that way. But at that time, they would have, um, I guess it was Sotheby's, uh, had essentially what you would see as an eBay kind of auction, but for artwork. And so you could go through there and find things you just, you know, buy name or by period or material, whatever it had been. And um, people just didn't use it very much uh, early on. So I got some really good deals on things because I didn't have people bidding against me. And so they had started um, the price, the initial bidding price fairly low because they figured it would go up to twice what it was and no one would bid on it except me, which was good for me and bad for them, which is why after probably 18 months, they stopped doing that <laughs> uh, because they weren't really making money on it. Uh, but then eBay was around in its infancy at that point, and it was... Um, it didn't have the same kind of search features that it does today. Um, you could, again, you could get some good deals on things if you knew, say, um, a common misspelling of a name that maybe somebody who didn't know exactly what they had would just misspell it. Um, you could do searches that way, and then other people wouldn't find things. <laughs> um, but then the, now the search device will just... Um, put the right name in there so you can't do that anymore um uh but yeah it's it's most, mostly been online just uh watching things over a couple decades and getting things that way 
And what is the range that print pieces usually um, go for? Well, that really depends on what the work is, number one. But the range that I kind of put things in is I usually um, would buy something for maybe $100 or less. I mean, there's some things that are probably worth quite a bit more that I might get for like $25 or something just on whatever period that's, that's what happens. Um, but things, I mean, I'll still see things that are in the thousands of dollars for prints and, you know, say you have something like a Rembrandt etching, which really isn't in the field of, uh, collector interest that I'm working on, but those things can go for $10,000. Um, what would fit into my collection, but not my budget is I just saw one of the auction houses had, um, some Jackson Pollock etchings, um, cause he actually worked with the people that I collect. And those, I think their starting bids were like eight or $9,000 for one etching. Do you have um, a favorite piece out of your entire collection? It's hard to just call one favorite because they, after, after a longer period of time, you're going to look at things and be excited about it at first. And then it's like, oh, no, but now I found this, um, which is kind of the addictive element of collecting. Um, but there are pieces. There's there's probably one in particular that was really the first one uh, that I, one of the first ones that I bought for the collection, but one of the ones that I saw when I was in graduate school that the, that the school had um, that I said to myself, if I can ever find one of these, I'm going to get that. And I probably have paid the most for that one. Um, and then I just saw it come up on eBay recently, the same print, and I could have gotten it for a lot less at that point. But that was, it was, I wasn't, I went through a dealer to get it the first time. And that one is one that I just kind of always keep in front of me. There are some things as I get new pieces, I might take something down and put something in its place because it's new and has like new energy <laughs> in the house. But um, the, there are certain ones that just won't come down because I do want to be looking at them often. So what kind of content do you collect? Uh, the the work that I have mostly been collecting, uh, there, there are some little offshoots here and there, but it's gotten more um, narrow of a focus over the last few years in particular, uh, but is around a particular artist um, named Stanley Hayter. He was a British artist who moved to Paris, France, and kind of the birth of modernism like in the 30s when Picasso and Matisse were really important artists and everybody was going to Paris before everything moved to New York and um, he he started as an engraver uh, which means that you use a tool to make the lines that you kind of dig out of an etching plate usually a copper plate um, and then he moved into doing some etching, which is actually using an acid to bite into the plate to make those similar kinds of lines. Um, but he usually used both of those in his methods. And um, so he he started in the in the 30s doing this and actually had some friends um, who asked if he would teach them how to do engraving. And out of that, he well, basically he said to them, if you can find me a press, um, then I will do this. Because I think he was using someone else's press at that time, printing press. 
And so that's basically how his workshop started. And so he just would have people work using the the press and the space that he had there, um, teaching them some of the rudimentary elements of how to do engraving or eventually etching. Uh, and it became a place where a lot of people, because they were in Paris, um, so you would have sculptors and painters and people that, that maybe printmaking wasn't their primary medium. And they would come to experiment with these new ideas of surrealism and some of the other movements that were important at the time. And he was associated with the surrealists for a while. And it was just a big exchange of ideas there. So some of the biggest artists, like Picasso, actually worked there and a lot of other people. I do not have Picasso pieces <laughs> because that does not fit my budget. But um, So uh, when the war broke out with World War II, um, he actually moved the workshop to... Uh, New York City, uh, and which was when everyone else was moving to New York City for, of, of artists that were in um, Paris at the time and kind of started it again. And so then the abstract expressionists and other people started studying with him there. And basically the major printmakers of the 20th century, the, the mid to later 20th century, um, most of them worked with him at some point. Uh, he also developed, well, he kind of developed it, some of the people that I have in the collection, but that were worked with him, um, developed some special color printing processes. Um, prior to this, you would have to, if you wanted to do a color etching, you'd have to do multiple plates for different colors and print them one on top of the other, uh, which can be problematic because you have to use a paper that is dampened and it, when it dries, then it shrinks in different ways. And so it was, it was really complicated. He wanted to be able to make it more immediate and be able to put the colors on all at once and just run it through the press one time. Uh, eventually, they developed this process that is sometimes called color viscosity printing. Um, and this was in the later 50s when they were able to finally figure this out. First, they had done it actually by like silk screening onto the plate. Um, and that was very complicated as well. And then they realized that if they used some inks that were more oily and some inks that were less oily, that when they rolled them across the surface of the plate, they would reject each other. So if you put a really oily ink onto the plate first and then put a tacky ink over the top of that, where it was oily, that color would stay unaffected by the color coming on top of it. Uh, also, then they would use different uh, levels of the plate so that they could have a hard roller and a soft roller and depending on how hard or soft it was, it would hit different levels of the plate and deposit the ink in different places. Um, so it was, it's, it's very complicated and technical, all of that. But that was what I loved was the color. Um, so it was one of uh, Hader's color pieces that I first saw when I was in graduate school. And then I kind of started expanding out from there. So it's people from all around the world. Um, but most of them are associated with him or worked with some of the people who worked with him. Um, and so there's, you know, over a hundred pieces, I guess, that are connected to all of that. How many pieces do you have in your collection right now? Total? I don't have like an actual number for you. <laughs> um, because if I, if I count my total collection, um, back in, again, like the early 2000s, late 90s, I first started when I, I bought a few pieces, but I was actually collecting either through doing exchanges with friends. Um, so I would have a piece, they would have a piece, and we would decide, okay, you take this and I'll take this. Um, it's good to have artists as friends because you can get artwork for free kind of that way. Um, but I would also do print exchanges. I was working with some different groups where 
um, everybody does say 20 prints and you have 20 people and then they all exchange it and you get everybody else's prints as well. So I have a lot of those, uh, like in the hundreds of, of those pieces. Most of those, I mean, they're okay. It's not stuff that I'm like thrilled with all the time, although there are some really beautiful pieces um, that, and I use that more for teaching. I'll, I'll show students some of the different processes that people would use. Um, but for the things that I was actually collecting that I'm putting money down for, that's probably, it's probably just shy of like 200, I would, I would guess if I went through all of it. And for those who are interested, is there a way that we can view some of the collection? The the one specific part of the collection that is part of uh, Stanley Hayter's workshop, which was called Atelier 17, just means like workshop 17. Um, those are on my website right now because I'm putting those into and I'm forming an exhibition of that. Um, and that's just over 100 pieces. That um, If you go to tyrusclutter.com um, and it's under the exhibitions area there, you'll be able to find that fairly easily. Thank you. What are your future plans for your collection? Well, as I said, that I, I have a lot of them surrounding Atelier 17 and Stanley Hayter. And uh, at first it was just, I really liked this stuff. And actually that was kind of how I learned to do some of the processes myself uh, because I didn't really learn about their processes while I was taking printmaking classes in graduate school. Um, I just kind of learned whatever we had in the classes, but I, I'm like, I, I really want to learn this. So I had to do that kind of on my own. Uh, and it w some of it was through experimentation, but as I started getting pieces, I'm like, oh, if I put these two colors together in this way, then that is what is going to happen. Um, but then as I kind of kept getting more pieces and I would do, you know, I have to do a lot of research as I'm, um, actually getting the pieces on, eBay or wherever it might be because I'm not just going to put money out and, and people will ask me sometimes things about you know how do you know that you're getting the right thing that somebody's not duping you and it's like I know because I spent 20 years looking at this stuff <laughs> I, I know what you know I'll, I'll know that it's someone's signature that it's correct signature and for Hayter himself there's a, a book a catalog of all of his prints so um, well, it's most of them. There's actually a few that are out there that are not uh, in that book. Um, but I can go there and look through it um, and go, okay, yeah, this is exactly what I want. And it's, um, it's from this edition of that, or it was a special proof. Like there's, um, I just got one that was a color test of um, the, the final piece. Um, so they were like trying different colors on it. Um, and so that's kind of a special piece just because of that. But um, as I started getting more and more of these, I thought, you know, this would actually make a good exhibition. And so um, I have shown some of it before, but that was more all of, not all of my collection, but more of my collection. I wanted this to be a little more um, precise. And so I started trying to find some specific pieces that would fill in some gaps like from one period to another period uh, the very early period that are just the engraved black and white pieces before it went to the color um, so I, I had that in mind and uh, I'm making my own catalog of the work 
um, that has several different essays in it um, talking about, uh, say, the international um, aspect of Atelier 17, not just that it was that he was a British man who was working in Paris and then in the United States, um, but also that there were, you know, you had South Americans and Asians and all sections of Europe um, working together and um, all using the, the same technique, but in sometimes very different ways. So I was interested in that. I was interested in that there were um, many women uh, that were working there. And this is like kind of pre-U.S. feminist movement. So in the 40s and 50s, um, when women were really first starting to make a place in uh, modern art, and so I've very specifically tried to find some of those prints by the women. He, uh, his second wife, Hader's second wife, was actually a sculptor, uh, and they met because she came to work in his workshop, and then she did a lot of printmaking too. So, um, so it's interesting that just that there's this kind of independent female streak in there, and then process um, the different processes. All of those things are kind of interesting to me, and so I kind of wanted to share that in an exhibition. So I'm. Um, actually, just this week, I had sent out um, emails and uh, letters to some museums here in Florida that I would like to have this possibly go to. So, and I'm already in uh, contact with one museum that, in particular, that would was very interested in it. So, probably over the next five years or something, I'll probably show it at some different places. Thank you so much for your time. I will be sure to tell my friends about your printmaking and um, in hopes that they're interested. And um, I can't wait to see your exhibition when it comes out. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome. This podcast has been generously funded by the CF Foundation through the Addie G. Brandon Memorial Chair. The CF Foundation helps the college carry out its mission of providing quality educational services to residents of Marion, Citrus, and Levy Counties. Special thanks to Chris Knife for leading this grant session, Norma Tellez and Phyllis Pierzak for making all the moving pieces fit together, and the encouragement of Dr. Sarah Satterfield, Associate Dean Jennifer Frines, Associate Vice President Alan Daniff, and Vice President Mark Paul. Invaluable advice from Trey Moore has made this project possible. Music for CF Speaks was composed by Greg Snyder. This podcast was recorded by Professor James Dees and the Digital Media Network. The College of Central Florida offers equal access and opportunity in employment, admissions, and educational activities. The college will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, religion, gender, pregnancy, age, marital status, national origin, genetic information, or disability status in its employment practices or in the admission and treatment of students. Recognizing that sexual harassment constitutes discrimination on the basis of gender and violates this policy statement, the college will not tolerate such conduct. College of Central Florida is an equal opportunity college and avows its belief in equal access and opportunity for all students, employees, and guests of the institution. If you have a concern regarding discrimination or harassment, please contact Equity Officer Carol W. Smith, Ocala Campus, Ewer Century Center, room 306C, Ocala, Florida, 344-742322. Contact her by phone at 352-854-2322, extension 1437, or email smithc at cf.edu. Thanks for listening.